Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. And this is part three of our look at Hey Jude and maybe finally Stephen will actually get on to the song Hey Jude if if you've been paying attention so far part one we looked at the road to Hey Jude which was the um, disintegration of the relationship between John and Cynthia in part two we kind of looked at how that separation played out in the press and provoked Paul into writing a song that he identified as being something a little bit special as he played it to everybody who would listen Um, and now we've reached part three where we're going to look at the song itself and the Beatles first bring the song into existence when um, they specifically do rehearsals not particular it's not really identified as recording. They are rehearsals for two nights, the 29th and 30th of July, 1968, in EMI Studios, Abbey Road. And they do, I think, 25 takes across the two days. Is that right? That's right. And these are not recording. These are not intended to be recordings. These are just rehearsals so that uh, George can learn his very complicated guitar part. <laughs> Yes. Um, well, is he doing that guitar part from the start or when does he uh, f- flag that up? Pretty much from the start. <laughs> so on that first day, they put about six, what you might euphemistically call uh, takes down, um, only three of which were complete. And from this day, it's Paul on vocals, track one, piano, track two, John on acoustic guitar and George on electric guitar, both on one track, track three, and Ringo on drums. And it's worth pointing out that in EMI Abbey Road, they are working on four track recording systems. It's important to just keep that in the back of your mind. Um, but they're just recording there, or they're just rehearsing there. Yes. Uh, so they, they record effectively three takes. So take one is six minutes, 21. Take two is four minutes, 17. And take six is five minutes, 25. So it was always going to be a long song. A long song. And... Yeah, that, that that whole coda at the end is part of the song from the get-go, from all those spontaneous performances in pubs and things. The na-na-nas are there, and it's a question of trying to translate that across. And yeah, it's on day one that George is doing these guitar responses. Um, and uh, these pop up in Peter Jackson's Get Back, because it's part of the heated debate between Paul and George. And what George wants to do is he wants to have this responsive guitar to every vocal melody line. Pretty much. And this this, yes. this 
does become a major issue between Paul and George. And it's not an issue that I think ever, ever gets forgotten. Yeah. It's one of those things that just keeps getting... I'm sure they had loads of arguments, but it's one that kind of gets trotted out as, oh, here's here's a little story about the relationship between yes. Paul and George. Yes, it becomes a sort of a touchstone. And you can hear the first two takes uh, recorded or uh, have been officially released. Take one is on the 50th anniversary box of the White Album and take two is on Anthology 3. So you can get an idea of what that embryonic arrangement uh, is. And what... What the problem seems to be is that, that, as you've mentioned before, Paul comes in with the record in his head. Mm -hmm. You know, he knows exactly what this song is going to sound like in his head. Whereas George is much more approaching it from the point of view, this is a song, it could be anything. It could go in any one of a dozen different directions and we just need to work on it and see which, whereas Paul comes in with a much more fixed idea. And that session goes on till about 4 a.m. And the second day of rehearsal is July 30th, 1968. And it appears to be after the first take on that second day that Paul discusses this contribution. So just to describe it, in case I haven't described it well, the thing is, Paul sings the line, Hey Jude, and then George goes, don't make it bad. And and George goes, on his guitar. And that's what Paul doesn't want. So Paul, Paul kind of steps in and says, let's not do that. Yeah, it's like having George in the room. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I do postulate that years later he does the exact same thing on Real Love, you know? Yes. All the little girls and boys playing with their little toys. Like it's that same idea. Um, and so Paul in many years from now says, I remember sitting down and showing George the song and George did the natural thing for a guitar player to do, which is to answer every line of vocal. And it was like, no, George. And he was pretty offended. And looking back, I think, oh, shit, of course you'd be offended. You're blowing the guy out. I said, no, no, no. You come in on the second chorus, maybe it's going to be a, a big build this. And, uh, you know, he's, another quote, he says, you know, it was a bit of a number for me to have to dare to tell George Harrison, who's one of the greats, <laughs> not to play. It was like an insult. But that's how we did a lot of our stuff. Yeah, seems seems reasonable. Mm. We have we have an eyewitness that isn't Jeff Emmerich, uh, okay. so he's he's more credible, I think. Ron Richards, uh, who, who worked at Parlophone and then later at Air Studios, said Paul was oblivious to anyone else's feelings in the studio. He was driven to making the best possible record at almost any cost. Mm. But we also have another eyewitness in the studio, which is literal cameras. Um, and because George essentially goes off into the control booth and the cameras are there for this documentary called Music, because it's got an exclamation mark. So I'm going to call it Music. Very good. Thank you very much. Uh, what is music? Uh, music. Not the movie, not the general concept. What is what is music? This is this is a, do- a documentary about, I'm going to check my notes here, music. Ah. And it's a film crew from the National Music Council of Great Britain. They're there just to record or to film the Beatles working on a song. And uh, this eventually ends up, I think, in it gets a theatrical release and you can go and see it uh, late 1969. It's the trailer to the producers by Mel Brooks. And they're supposed to be working very unobtrusively, just in the background, uh, sort of fly on the wall style documentary but Ken Scott says you know of course they got in everybody's way everybody's getting uptight about it they didn't like it of course this is the template for get back well you do wonder is this a little um 
another kind of little marker in their brains as, oh, this is something that could be done. We could do this with a film crew in tow. Film us working. Well, I think certainly Ken Scott seems to say Paul mm. Paul was the only one that wasn't annoyed by this or didn't find this intrusive. And, and, you know, I think it's reasonable to speculate that this is where the germ of the idea plants itself in Paul's mind. Yeah. I, th- I think that's I think that's possibly true, and you can see this footage if you haven't seen it already. It is available on YouTube, and it also has this kind of odd footage of kind of these kind of telex machines typing out all the Beatles credits and information from all around the world. If you're an early computer nerd uh, like myself as well, but the other thing it captures is, as I said, uh, George Harrison is kind of sitting up in the box, leaning into George Martin as this song is coming together, and he's. Um, he's he's being a bit little brothery. <laughs> he is he is talking to George Martin, and George Martin very clearly is not listening. It's like you know, I'm not really interested. And to be fair, yeah, George Harrison does sound high as a kite, or slightly the worse for wear, shall we say? So I don't know whether the the white wine was flowing as freely as it would subsequently mm. and get back. But what he says, he's saying to George Martin, you see, that's the difficulty I find because it's only a concept because though his opinion says, no, it doesn't go like that. It goes like that, but it goes like that and it goes through everything. I mean, it can be, you know what I mean? Just one bit of music can be pop, jazz, classic, or whatever you're going to do it. It is it. Yep. That's what he says. And that makes perfect sense to me. Perfect sense, you know, just uh, whatever you think it is. Um, so they, they, they do some more recording, um, a rehearsing in, in Abbey Road. But the very curious thing about um, Hey Jude is that the actual master track for Hey Jude is recorded somewhere else entirely. And that's the next day, the 31st of July. Yes. So they end up at Trident Studios. Now, Trident Studios is uh, in central London as well, near uh, Soho. And we talked about how they had four tracks in Abbey Road, but Trident has eight tracks. Yes, yes, a whole eight tracks. Which allows them to do a little bit uh, extra. And uh, so the the, the lineup uh, with them on the basic tracks is McCartney on piano and lead vocal, Lennon on acoustic guitar, Harrison on electric guitar, Ringo Starr on drums. And uh, they record four takes, and it's the first of those takes that is actually the master that we all know today. Yes, and uh, they're all in the studio for the recording, except for Ringo. Where is Ringo? What's he doing? What could be so important that he's not there? He's at the bathroom. Ah, right. Okay. Um, yeah, this is another Paul anecdote. Paul yeah. anecdote, we'll call them. A Paul anecdote. Um, yes, where he says, uh, Hey Jude goes on for hours before the drums come in. And while I was doing it, I suddenly felt Ringo tiptoeing past my back rather quickly, trying to get to his drums. And just as he got to his drums, boom, 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 his timing was absolutely impeccable. So yeah, they start the take not realising Ringo isn't there, and yeah. Ringo sneaks into his drums to uh, to hit his fill right on the mark. You know, Ringo, Ringo doesn't make mistakes, really. Um, and Paul takes this as a, a, a good omen. They, they do record another three takes, but uh, they, they go back to this, this first one, and uh, Paul seems to think, this is a good sign that Ringo just comes in perfectly on time. And uh, presumably they have George's uh, electric guitar turned down. <laughs> yeah, now Paul says, you know, when these things happen, the light bulb goes off in your head and you think this is the take and you put a little more into it. So he obviously feels that Ringo uh, straddling 
uh, sidling in from the bathrooms makes this an extra special take, one for the ages. Um, and, you know, Abbey Road is famous for its pianos. Did I ever tell you about the time I played the pianos in Abbey Road, Stephen? No. Uh, life-changing experience. <laughs> um, but Trident Studios has a famous piano as well, which is the, the Hey Jude piano. Yes, certainly life-changing for the small child you trample to uh, get, <laughs> get to. Yes, so the... the, the <laughs> It's a whole life ahead of him. The uh, yeah, this is the same piano that uh, um, Rick Wakeman plays on Life on Mars, and Freddie Mercury plays uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Elton John plays on Levon. So it's a good piano. It's a pretty good piano. It's a it's a, a Bechstein piano. Is that some kind of Italian sauce? I uh, no, I just I'm just saying that because I have a Bechstein piano. Clang. Um, which is a very nice piano, I have to admit. Um, so they, uh, they, the, the, this piano sounds. It's funny that it is the same piano. They get a, a kind of a different McCartney kind of sound out of it, um, and the overdubs also happen at Trident as well. So they're doing McCartney puts a you know a proper lead vocal on, a bass guitar on, um, the three Lennon, McCartney, and Harrison do backing vocals. Stars tambourine, I think. We undervalue how important the tambourine is in Hey Jude. It's like a lead tambourine um, is uh, goes over that. Um, but there's also the orchestral recording. Yes, so they have a 36-piece orchestra, which has been arranged and scored by George Martin. And George had already set, obviously, all of this up while they're back rehearsing those few days ago on Abbey Road. He has a, he's scored it and he's arranged for this is going to be the day for the, the orchestral Overdubs, and uh, this doesn't go particularly well. Some of these orchestral mm. guys, these classical players, are a little bit sniffy about appearing on a Beatles records. Uh, and Paul just takes that in his stride, or does he... Um, yeah, well, he, he, There's this story from Norman Sheffield, which I take with a pinch of salt. Yeah, so he, he says, you know, they were really looking down their noses, and he said uh, McCartney ensured their cooperation by demanding, do you guys want to get fucking paid or not? Oh, that, I mean, that, that they're will, getting paid anyway by turning up. I don't think that's going to necessarily I, get them uh, going. Yeah. So then he also says during the first, first few takes, Paul was unhappy about the lack of energy and passion in the orchestra's performance. So he stood up on the grand piano. I'm sure that went down well with the... Uh, mm. And uh, started conducting the musicians from there. Of course he did. Mm. He can do whatever he wants. And uh, the Beatles then asked the orchestra if they'll clap their hands and sing along to the nananas and all but one comply, uh, but they get a double fee for doing so because essentially they're playing two parts. Um, and there's a, an apocryphal potentially story of one abstainer saying, I'm not going to clap my hands and sing Paul McCartney's bloody song. Um, although maybe maybe George said that. No, he didn't. I'm no, not joking. <laughs> and there's other people on there. Uh, Chris O'Dell, Jackie Lomax, other people are in the room. Yes. And uh, so basically it just seems to be Mal Evans we know was there because the, yeah. the, the guys that run Trident say, no, I don't know if this is true, but they, they say Mal Evans brought some marijuana plants into the, studi- right. into the studio to create the nice atmosphere. And I think that seems to me to be unlikely that you would be walking through the streets of Soho in the rain with uh, <laughs> carrying, you know, several pot plants, as it were, under each arm. But also, they didn't have such, um, I wouldn't say luxury, but they didn't have such behaviour in in Abbey Road. I mean, they're famous for, if anything, hiding their drug use when they're working in the studios. Perhaps Trident was just a cooler place to be. 
Certainly, certainly seems cool. I mean, it, yeah, as you say, it uh, became one of Bowie's main hangouts uh, pretty soon after. Um, it's very, it's a, it's, thing, it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a very nondescript building from the outside. I yeah, mean, I've walked past it too. It's you'd, it's like an office door into some offices, and uh, you'd you'd almost miss it. Yeah, it's got a little plaque now, but uh, yeah, yeah, you 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 just walk past. You don't you you don't don't even know it's there. So anyway, they have a mass chorus on mm. this uh, with, with, with people there. And uh, should we talk about the swearing? Are you trying to tell me there is swearing in Hey Jude, this lovely song? This lovely ballad that's addressed to everybody. Uh, <laughs> if you look at the song's final bridge section, about just before the three-minute mark, about 2.58, there's a spoken phrase <gasps> that somebody in the background goes, Fucking now. <laughs> yes. And it's one of those things like the edit in Strawberry Fields. Once you hear it, you can't unhear it. But they, you know, they tried to mix it low in the mix, but you can still, you can still hear it. So it's uh, Paul. He misses a cue and goes, "Whoa, fucking hell!" Isn't that right? Well, well, this is this is like the as in a day in the life where even I will disagree with Giles Martin and uh, still maybe go to bat thinking it's Paul. Um, is it is it Paul? Could it be John who what? says it? Uh, you know, because there's a story that Lennon, um, you know, put on a, a pair of headphones to do the harmony vocals. They were too loud, and he pulled them off and said, "Oh fucking hell!" Um, and it's it's uh, it's John Lennon, or John Perry, or you're right. It could be John. It what? Could, it could, Who's John Perry? <laughs> it could be John. It could be John Perry. I think it probably is John Perry. It has the ring of truth that it was John Perry because he was there. Uh, well. Well, here's where I say, Stephen, who, who he? Who, who Perry? John Perry, he's the uh, lead singer with Journey. No, that's somebody else. No, Steve Perry. Sorry. Um, yeah, John, John Perry, he was in Grapefruit, if you, if you know that mm-hmm. band, Grapefruit. So Grapefruit. Grapefruit. So Grapefruit were a pre-Apple label band in the Apple universe who signed to Apple Publishing, is what I know about Grapefruit. Essentially, that's right. They were... Right discovered supposedly by a man from the motor trade uh, Terry Doran who's in grapefruit because they signed to Apple publishing but it's all it's one of these things that's all overlapping isn't it they they do so uh, there's a bass guitarist George Alexander who was originally Alexander young he was the older mm-hmm. brother of the easy beats uh, guitarist George young and also brother to Malcolm and Angus young and you remember the easy beats the easy beats who were um Joe Orton's eye candy in our unmade Beatles films episodes that he thought they were the entertainment for the night when it turns out they were the other type of entertainment for the night. Exactly. They were the entertainment of the night. Yes, exactly. Yes. Exactly. So they, they they come into the orbit of uh, Terry Doran and uh, out of this, a new group is formed and they're named Grapefruit by John Lennon, uh, named after uh, Yoko's book. And this is at the start of 68, so it's long before it's John and Yoko, but Yoko, it's one of the first things that Yoko kind of influences, because the band are kind of introduced in January 1968 with a big press palaver, and they're called Grapefruit, and they're named after Yoko Ono's book by John Lennon. So Yoko is in the orbit. Exactly. Long before May. Exactly. So there's a big media launch in January 68. So you've got John there, Paul, Ringo, Brian Jones, Donovan. All the superstars mm. and Cilla Black are at the uh, <laughs> press launch and are all photographed. And there's some very funny photographs from, from that day. But there is a single, Dear Delilah, yep. which got to number tw- yep. 21. And then 
John and Paul actually in January 1968 take the band in to record uh, the follow-up uh, called Lullaby. It was originally originally called Circus Sergeant Pepper. This is just before they go to India. So John and Paul off in India, RCA, who are the record label, looking for the next single. It's not released. So it all kind of comes tumbling down at, at, at that point. And uh, RCA dropped the band. They get released from their Apple publishing contract. And there you go. That's the end. And it's interesting that that song doesn't come out until 2016. And yeah. it's, it's odd to have a Lennon and McCartney production credit. I can't actually think of another one. I know they were often in each other's orbit mm. during the Apple years. But um, this, this song comes out in 2016 on a compilation on RPM Records called Yesterday's Sunshine. And this Lennon-McCartney produced version of Lullaby appears there for the first time. Bit of a rare thing to arrive so late. Yes, I can't, uh, I can't off the top of my head uh, think of another Lennon-McCartney. No, neither can I. Production. But, but John Perry, he of Grapefruit, claims he was hanging around Trident. Yes. And uh, he says, and I'm going to quote here, it was here... Okay. It was here I watched the boys in action. It seemed that the piano and drums had previously been recorded, as had the lead vocal. I'm pretty sure, including the screaming ad-libs on the end. So I witnessed John and George tracking on those lead guitar bits in the control room. It's famous for its lead guitar part. Watched Paul <laughs> add his bass line in the large downstairs room, which was phenomenal. I'd always been a great admirer of Paul's bass lines. They were almost songs in themselves, having a melody and a groove that really fit whatever song he was working on. After this, the boys came around the Neumann mic setup in the middle of the floor and started adding the three-part drifters-type harmonies. All's great. I'm very happy watching this till they come to the part of the song that goes better, better, better. I was by this time sitting on the floor just watching this film-like event unfold me with the four Beatles around the mic. So he has Ringo there at this point. (laughs) Paul suddenly looks over in my direction and ushers me over to join them. I get up and start to walk towards the mic, which John, Paul, George and Ringo are standing around. The track is still recording. Paul gestures at the headphones. I reach down, put them on. They are so loud. And I shout out, fucking hell. (laughs) To my eternal shame or glory, depending on your standpoint, I then nervously sang along with the Beatles, the first layer of na-na-na's after the better, better, better part going right to the end of the song. I guess the proof that I was there is that my expletive undeleted can still be heard on the record at about 2.59. Hmm. And he says, it's clearly not a Liverpudlian accent as I was the only Cockney there. Seems legit, yeah? Absolutely. I'm convinced. It's a very specific story. I don't know whether to, I suppose, take with a pinch of salt. Um, could be true. Who he's, knows? He's, I, uh, John Perry's very big in Christian rock circles, so. Oh. I bet he's not dropping the F-bomb in any of his current music. I bet he's not. No, it's all about righteous gemstones. Anyway, um, the Beatles' Hey Jude single is recorded on 8-track equipment and uh, in Trident Studios. And they, you know, the, Trident becomes a bit of a base for Apple artists later in the year. So um, Jackie Lomax, Mary Hopkins, Billy Preston, Badfinger, the Ivies, they're all there. And the mixing actually um, gets finished and wrapped up over at Abbey uh, Road. There's a bit of technical issues trying to get the tape to work over in Abbey Road. Yes, it seems to play differently when they get it back to Abbey Road. And it's a very kind of murky, muddy song. But uh, who comes along to the rescue but Jeff Emmerich, uh, who, who, who just happens to be there. He's been replaced at this point by uh, Ken Scott, but he is there and he sorts it all out. 
<laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Um, and there's a stereo mix done at that time, but that's not used because this is a obviously earmarked at this point for the next single, and that's going to be put out in mono. And you know the the thing about Hey Jude is that it is a long song. It is a very long song, and George Martin is concerned that the you know it's too long that the radio stations would not play it. But Lennon insisted they will if it's us. And again. Mm. Nice, enti- nice use of the us, the first us. person plural. Yeah, in, in, mm. entitlement, entitlement. And <laughs> uh, according to Ken Mansfield, uh, he's written a couple of really quite good books. Uh, he was the US uh, manager for Apple. Paul even remained unconvinced until Ken previewed the song for some American DJs and reported back they were very enthusiastic. And uh, again, you just get a sense everybody is placing themselves at the center of the story, whether it's Ken Mansfield playing this and, and persuading them, oh yeah, the, the DJs will do this, or John Perry, or Jeff Emmerich saying he fixed the tape. Everybody wants to be at the centre of this story. Mm. And the other song that's kind of in the ether at that time is MacArthur Park, which is another seven plus minute song. Richard Harris has had a hit with it. And so there is a little bit of precedent for long songs getting to the top of the charts. There is. And author of the song, Jimmy Webb, says uh, that George Martin admitted to him that the only reason uh, that he allowed Hey Jude to run over seven minutes was because of the success of MacArthur Park. So, Thanks, uh, Jimmy Webb and uh, Richard Harris. Um, the single is uh, scheduled to come out on the 26th of August 1968 uh, in the US and the 30th of August uh, in the UK. And maybe as an echo of Paul playing the song on a piano before it exists and exciting people all about it, once he has the recording made and onto an acetate, he still wants to play it for people, doesn't he? He really does. And this is such a Paul story. I just love this story. I love this story too. (laughs) Paul has an acetate of the song. So... The Stones have just completed what will become Beggar's Banquet. You know, they're they're a real kind of return uh, to to form, and they have they're having this party uh, to to sort of celebrate this at uh, Vesuvio's nightclub in central London. And Paul rocks up to the party and says to the DJ, "Don't play that. Play this." He plays "Hey Jude," and then they play it again, and they play it again, and it completely upstages the Stones album. Uh, and according to John Wynne, ruined the party and uh, Mick was not happy. You can see that he wouldn't be happy. I, I um, yeah, I find that very funny. You know, Beggar's Banquet, you know, the, the previous Stones record has been their Satanic Majesties. And although that's a record I'm fond of, Beggar's Banquet is kind of this new era, you know, it's the start of that, you know, murky Delta Blues, uh, Rock Stones kind of vibe. And Paul rocks up, you know, they're all delighted with themselves that they've done some fantastic work on their, their new direction. And uh, Paul's saying, yeah, and uh, just play this repeatedly <laughs> in, in your face. I mean, bless him. He thinks people are enthusiastic and want to hear from him. And people do want to hear from him. But there's a place and a time, you know, instead of raining on the Rolling Stones parade. I think it's back to that notion that we mentioned in the previous episode about not being able to read the room, that he is sort of obli- mm. oblivious. He wants to get the record made. He, he doesn't, isn't kind of people managing, uh, you know, the, the musicians that are there. And it's the same thing. You, you know, you don't kind of turn up at somebody else's party and, and upstage them. But he's so excited about 
the song and it's a great song yeah. don't get me wrong it's a great, song, a great song but yeah, yeah there is a time and a place and this is not it the launch party of somebody else's record is not the time to turn up with your <laughs> latest chart topper and uh, well, essentially launching your own record on top of their record launch i mean um beggar's banquet doesn't come out until later in the year as we said the b-side uh to hey jude is revolution and a song that john had wanted on the a-side but he did call as we said hey jude worthy but he still had a bit of disagreement with the decision even uh, even as late as as 1980 but perhaps the more significant thing or the other significant thing that's attached to hey jude is that it is the first of four singles to be launched on apple records this is the first time people are going to get their eyes on that famous apple record label that we're still using today and probably the caveat that needs to be, you know, the, the small print is that technically the Beatles are still on EMI Parlophone. The catalogue number of the single is not an Apple catalogue number. It's an EMI Parlophone catalogue number. So EMI have given them the, the nod yep. to put the Apple label on and to pretend essentially it's on Apple. But technically it's not really on Apple. Yeah, that's perfectly described. Yeah. Thank you. Um, they're pretending. So yes, it, 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 it comes out. Uh, the 11th to 18th of August is designated National Apple Week. Desi- mm. Designated, we should say, by Apple Records as uh, Apple National Apple Week. And the first four singles, which are Hey Jude, Mary Hopkins, Those Were the Days, Jackie Lomax's Sour Milk Sea, and the Black Dyke Mills Band's Bob, all are released on the same day. They You can buy them individually, but they come in a lovely presentation box with press release, et cetera, et cetera. And these are very sought after. I've never seen one in real life. They go for several thousand pounds. And again, you know, the Nothing Is Real Museum is open for (laughs) donations. And they, they, Apple send gift wrap boxes uh, to the Queen and the Royal Family and the Prime Minister. And it's all a big hype. It's a fantastic hype, you know, and Derek Taylor is there uh, behind a lot of it. And, you know, in in the US, it's also on the Apple label. It's this, you know, but it's still distributed by Capital in the background. And it's it's not in a picture sleeve. It's in a black sleeve bearing the words, uh, the Beatles on Apple. And this is, you know, this is how the, be- the, the, the general world get to see the fruits of Apple. They've been talking this up since they've come back from India, which is, you know, not that long ago. You know, they start in, they're, they're on The Tonight Show uh, uh, in, and in New York in in um, May, promoting all of this. The, the adverts are already out, send us in all your stuff. And now, you know, three months later, we have these first four singles and, and they're decent singles. And, you know, they're all, you know, the, the Beatles are all involved, although generally McCartney is more involved than than maybe some of them. George has done Sour Milk Sea, but McCartney has kind of written and recorded, you know, those were the days. I know he didn't write that, but he's discovered it. He's produced it. He's all over Thingamabob. There's a lot of Paul in those first four singles. There is. And the B-side of Thingamabob is the instrumental version of Yellow Submarine. So it is interesting that Paul is so front and centre at the launch of Apple Records. And yeah. Hey Jude gets the number one. Uh, those were the days gets the number one. The other two don't. But two number ones, first, first records released. And as a statement of intent, it's a pretty solid single to start your record label with if you're the Beatles, you know, no doubt about it. And it's, um, it's a and it's a pretty diverse selection of yes, you know, there could have been no expectation that Thingamabob was going to go racing up the charts. Um, but it's you've got a 
instrumental brass band. You've got a hard rock number in Sarmel C. You've got a sort of folky number from uh, Mary Hopkin. And then you've got the Beatles being the Beatles. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah. Now, there's, there's a couple of other things we should mention just about the, the mixes that were done before we, we come back to the, the release. Um, it does get a bit of a run through uh, in, in Twickenham uh, during the get back sessions on January the 3rd, but there isn't actually a true stereo mix of Hey Jude until the end of 1969 uh, when they start putting together a mix for the Hey Jude compilation. Uh, and that's kind of its first proper stereo uh, mix as well as the stereo mix for Revolution, which is famously... Yes. Not as good as the monomix for Revolution and something that John Lennon actively dislikes. And if you haven't heard the monomix of Revolution, it's fantastic. I really had hoped that the White Album box would give us a proper stereo a la monomix of Revolution. No? No. They'll be no, in the si- 60th anniversary box set, I imagine. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for that. And um, uh, it's also obviously been remixed uh, for the versions that are on uh, Anthology 3 and the the segments that are used in in Beatles love and the stereo mix is slightly shorter a few seconds shorter it is a few seconds shorter yes than the than the mono mix and uh there's also of course a remix on the 2015 version of Beatles one that is a stereo remix. yes and uh another mix of take one on the white album so you lose track of um but once the single is out it has to be promoted and so we're going to talk about that after this break End of part one. Intermission. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. Now, one of the things we all remember about Hey Jude is the promotional film that that goes with it. And there was a very ornate idea originally, wasn't there, by a a chap called Roy Benson, who had a massive storyboard and a three-day shoot plan for all sorts of Hey Jude-type shenanigans. Yes. Now, I have not seen or been able to find this 38 scene storyboard but it sounds like it's a, a sort of more modern style of video perhaps than a, a, a performance uh, video he had worked with them on hello goodbye as well as on the magical mm. mystery tour and he clearly has something elaborate in mind and they agree to do this but when they heard it was going to take three days they weren't prepared to do it so that's too many days yeah too many days <laughs> too many days so they hire, uh, check in my notes, Michael Lindsay Hogg uh, ah. to shoot promotional clips for both Hey Jude and Revolution. And they hire Michael Lindsay Hogg to shoot these promotional clips in a studio called, let me check notes again, Twickenham Studios. This is all being, I mean, to be honest, in Peter Jackson's Get Back, they are pretty clear that 
this experience of Hey Jude and having an audience near them and being in a recording studio is a direct precursor event to what will happen a few months later in January 1969 during the Get Back era. Um, and the plan is it's just going to be a straightforward live performance of the, the, the song with a you know live, albeit sort of controlled and casted, for want of a better word, uh, audience. They know that the audience are going to sort of move forward and join them on the stage effectively. And that's the way it's structured from the beginning. They have an orchestra and uh, the vocals are going to be sung live because there's a a union ban on miming. Mm. But otherwise, it's a backing track and it is shot at Twickenham on the 4th of September 1968. Yeah, so they managed to get Twickenham at at that uh, short notice. And one of the curious things about this is one of the big stories about the White Album is that Ringo quits during the White Album for a number of days, goes off on holidays, you know, thinks he's disillusioned with the Beatles and they eventually try and, you know, entice him back. And while he's gone, they record um, back in the USSR and Dear Prudence. Um, But uh, what, what maybe people aren't quite aware of is that it's actually the Hey Jude clip is Ringo's first appearance with the band like that's when he rejoins the band it's not in abbey road it's actually this clip yes so he's he's he has sort of arrives back from holiday the day before and then they go straight into recording this uh this clip so it's it's sort of an elaborate stage that they've constructed with ringo at the highest level and then john and george george playing a six-string bass for the purposes of this clip now i say playing this is this is miming uh only the uh, no live instruments are actually um, heard, but all the mics are live. Yes. And uh, there's also a miming orchestra. They've hired a 36-piece orchestra to, um, to 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 just sit in the background and mime. Yeah. We never get any yeah. close-ups of the orchestra. They, they could be, you know, robots or cutouts for all we know. We never really see them in, in any kind of detail. And then there's these 300 extras that are there. And these are kind of pooled by... It seems Mal Evans is one of the main people responsible for trying to get people together and out to Twickenham. Yes, Mark Lewison mentions in the Complete Beatles Chronicle that these that he had like 20 students and, and Mal out handing out leaflets, you know, would you like to come along and uh, be part of a Beatles video? I suppose they wouldn't have said mm. video, but uh, promotional yes. film at that time. And we do have an eyewitness account from a Margaret Morell, uh, mm-hmm. she, really, she basically says, uh, I was staying with my fa- friend's family in Felton, Middlesex, and when one evening I got a phone call from my American pen friend who was on holiday in London. She said that my friend Carol and I should go quickly to the AMI studios in Abbey Road as the Beatles were looking for people to take part in an event. We both knew Mal Evans uh, quite well. I phoned him at the studios. Don't know how she knew Mal Evans. Uh, he said we should sign a paper if we wanted to take part. Uh, we went along to Abbey Road, asked for Mal. We signed. Don't remember exactly what we had to sign, but uh, it was to say we wouldn't ask for any payment for whatever we were going to do. We still had no idea what was involved. I can't imagine her parents letting her out to sign a piece of paper. 
uh, in those terms. I said, we were given instructions to go to a meeting point in London next morning. The coaches were waiting for all the extras. We still didn't know where we were going. When we arrived at the entrance of the studios, we were told we were going to be filmed in a video with the Beatles, who were up at a window watching us all, giving us smiles and waves. Everyone was very excited and happy, of course. Some of the people were regular fans like us. Others were students who I think had been invited from various London schools. When we were taken inside the studio where Hey Jude was going to be filmed that morning, we were told what we had to do. When the Beatles got to the end of the song, we had to go up on the stage or gather around them and sing the na-na-na's. Paul helped by saying, now, when it was time to join in. We were all sitting around waiting for our cue. It could have been a free-for-all. Well, it's. I think what they managed to pull off is it seems spontaneous, but yeah. it's not spontaneous. They do very... Uh, a very high number of takes throughout the day and kind of composite. Uh, there's, there's two kind of promo films that get put together that look the exact same yeah. and uh, where they, they're editing together possibly two separate takes and there's, a, there's other bootleg versions that have knocked around and there's two versions on the OnePlus um, collection from 2015. Yes, so that, I mean, she does say that they filmed lots of takes and they went on from early morning and finished at 10 in the evening. So uh, they, they'd have heard that song dozens of times. Uh, and somebody else who is there is David Frost. Now, if, if, you know, I'm sure most people listening here are familiar with the clip. Um, you know, it first came up in lovely quality in Anthology and it's on, you go to the Beatles YouTube channel and it's the official Hey Jude video has the, the David Frost segment. But David Frost is there on the pretense that, oh, it's actually his TV show and they've rocked up into the studio to perform this song in their show. So his section is recorded up front as an add-on because he's going to David Frost at this point in time is involved with London Weekend Television and he's recording three shows a week Frost on Friday Frost on Saturday Frost on Sunday and they're they're different types of shows um that you know one's light entertainment one's kind of news and discussion and interviews and all the rest so this is for his show Frost on Sunday and he records his sequence as if they are in the studio um appearing on his Frost on Sunday show which is uh, due to go out on September the 8th 1968 and uh, the Beatles run through an ad-lib version of his theme song, which is called By George. It's David Frost theme. And it was written by George Martin. Which is why it's called By George, I they, guess. <laughs> they've got all of this uh, sewn up. Yes. And if you see it, you know, David Frost, whenever I, whenever I think of David Frost impressions, I think of Eric Idle. He goes, magnificent, a perfect rendition, the greatest tea room orchestra in the world. My pleasure to introduce now for the first live appearance of goodness is how long in front of an audience, the Beatles, and then they kick into It's Now or Never. It's very, it's a very fun, endearing moment. It is. But David Frost is not a man for ad-libbing. You know, it's a he's he's not <laughs> yes. he's not good with the ad not good with the ad uh, libs. So, uh, so there's a couple of interesting bits in the in the video. Certainly, I like to see Paul looking at John and John looking at Paul, and Paul kind of almost laughs at one point, and he's definitely directing this with his eyes without trying to look as if he is. Well, John John misses uh, coming in on a harmony vocal, and then John kind of rather sheepishly acknowledges it, and then comes in and uh, you, you also have Paul at one point in, in singing Take a Load Off Fanny Put It Back On Me from the Wait by the Band your favourite al- uh, favourite favourite favorite band favourite group yeah. favourite group isn't the Baron Knight <laughs> uh, yes and it's, it's I don't think we can really understand how incredibly important and influential getting this clip out in front of the audience was because you know, we've had this summer of John and Yoko and the Beatles going weird and John's marriage falling apart and 
um, you know, we nothing has been heard musically from the Beatles uh, since they've come back from India, almost, apart from Lady Madonna at the start of the year, almost all year. And John had been on David Frost's show two weeks earlier with Yoko, and that was another very big blast to the UK viewing public of, you know, the Beatles have gone a bit funny, haven't yeah. they? That John is now with Yoko and the fear might have been, are the Beatles falling apart? Has John Lennon lost his mind? Um, what is what what is this going to mean? So aside from the visual presentation of this extraordinary song, there's also this part of the audience that, that kind of gets to see something they haven't seen in a long time, which is the four Beatles together. Yoko isn't there. Like, she's not yeah. sitting in on uh, Hey Jude the way she'd be sitting in on the Get Back sessions a few months later. And, you know, people are relieved and happy that it's the four of them. John is working with Paul. They're simpatico once more. We can all relax. I think this is exactly it. It seems to be a return to normal service. You know, normal service has been resumed. Here are the Beatles. There's a great song. They're surrounded by fans. They're just doing what the Beatles do. And it's a great song. And as you say, Yoko isn't there. So Yoko will have been dominating the headlines. The John and Yoko story will have been dominating the headlines uh, in the preceding two or three two or three months. Uh, this is also a step on the way to the new album that's coming. So, as you say, palpable sigh of relief from everyone. This is back to normal. Yes, and 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 the the other thing that people have seen in in you know the preceding month or so is that the Ella Submarine film has hit the cinemas as well. Yeah. So they've seen that little clip of the Beatles at the end, even though that's recorded um, much earlier in the year, in, in February nineteen sixty eight. But people are being able to be reassured after six months of quite a, a roller coaster ride and and, and weirdness that uh, you know maybe they can. You know, it's all going to be okay, actually. Everything's going to be fine. And that that chimes with the mood of the song itself. Yes. That re- yeah. that comfort and that reassurance. Everything's going to be fine. And here we are. We haven't gone away. And they are surrounded by fans. And there is a kind of communal sense of togetherness. And it's a very 60s moment. It's, it's sort of the 1968 equivalent of All You Need Is Love in 67. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing that worth mentioning gets filmed that day is the Revolution video, where again, like Hey Jude, it is uh, live vocals to a to a backing track. So it's you know again another kind of all you need is love kind of hangover is not taking any chances yeah. and doing just enough to meet musicians' union rules. And um, you know, again, it's a video you're all probably familiar with, with uh, the three Beatles up front with those very 60s microphones. It's all a bit colour me pop. And uh, they're singing Revolution and Paul's doing the scream. And we've got those extra shooby doo wop backing vocals, which are nice. This is my favourite version of uh, Revolution. I like the combination of the, the sort of screaming guitars and screaming vocals and the shooby doo wop backing vocals. Yeah. And um, heaven forbid you should rip that from your DVD and uh, play it. That would be a terrible. <laughs> I wouldn't that would, condone. That would be a terrible. Wouldn't condone such behaviour. But it is kind of a new mono version, new vocal version, and we think it was only screened once at the time on TV. Yes, with it was uh, Top of the Pops Thursday, the nineteenth of September, and I don't think I haven't seen uh, reference to any other version. Mm. Um, but this this is a 
effectively a different mono mix ends up then on the uh, on on one plus and on the video uh, we could maybe assume this was filmed quite late in the day because mm-hmm. there is a point where you can see George make a comment and he either says John stinks or John smells like shit. Well, I've heard another theory of this, which George is actually saying John's mic is shit. Oh, right. Which might be a bit more kind and would make sense because he is kind of overloading that mic with his, yeah. with his vocals. So I, I think I would go with John's mic. Okay. I'm just trying to think lip reading wise. Do they look, does smike and smell? You could say they, they might look the same. Well, you go back and um, we, we can have a Twitter poll. Yes, I feel a Twitter poll coming on. Um, and the Hey Jude video eventually gets a debut uh, on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour in America on the October the 6th, 1968. And it's a song that does phenomenally well in America. It's number one for nine weeks. It's number one till nearly the end of the year, you know, like into November. I think I'm right in saying it's their biggest hit in, in, you know, yeah, in terms in the of sales. States, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's another bit of promotion that perhaps isn't quite as well thought out. Yes. Uh, this is the Apple Boutique uh, has mm. has closed. So the Beatles have a piece of empty real estate. And uh, on the 7th, 8th August that night, uh, Paul McCartney and Francis Schwartz paint Hey Jude Revolution across the whitewashed shop windows. So the windows, it's empty. The windows have been whitewashed to stop people looking in. And they write that on the window. And that is immediately mistaken for anti-Semitic graffiti. Mm. Uh, Jude means Jew in German. And the windows are smashed. It leads to complaints from the local Jewish community. And uh, because you can, there are pictures or footage from Nazi Germany with that being sort of scrolled, that word uh, scrolled on walls. And uh, Paul said, uh, it's a great opportunity. Baker Street, millions of buses going around. I had no idea it meant Jude. But if you look at footage of Nazi Germany, Juden Rice was written in whitewashed windows with a star of David. I swear it never occurred to me. Mm. And, you know, he has another version of the story where, um, you know, Mr. Leon, a nearby shop owner who was Jewish, rang me and said, what are you doing? How dare you do this? Um, You know, uh, and so on and so on. I didn't make the connection. He rings me up and he's furious. What are you? Why are you doing this? Making fun of the Jews. And I said, no, no, no. Wait a minute. I swear to you, it's nothing like that. And this chap says, I'm going to send my son around to beat you up. And I said, hey, baby, let's cool it down. When you hear the record, it's a name in the song and it's all cool. Uh, Another one of the another entry in the genre of Paul McCartney stories of a conversation with a person who helps me look all right, (laughs) which is a type of story he tells. And then this person told me that, um, you know, McCartney 2 is a great record. And I said, no, it isn't. They said, yes, it is. And now I think it is. You know, he he has those stories. I, I can't really imagine how this man got Paul McCartney's number to ring him up and threaten to beat him up. But that's what he says. I do like the line, hey, baby, let's cool it down. That's very Austin, very Austin Powers. Um, now, it was only reasonably recently, like about two or three years ago, I, there, there are actually pictures of the Hey Jude Revolution window. Um, uh, and if you do see them, it is kind of, if you don't know the context, it does look a bit yeah. strange. You think, well, what does that mean? You know, so, um, you know, I, 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 I can understand why people out of context would have thought that's a bit strange. And, uh, um, you know, because this 
graffiti happens about a week after they record the song. It happens about the 8th or 9th of August. So the song isn't in the charts yet. It, it's not common knowledge yet, you know. Yes, there is no context for it. It's, it's uh, too soon, Paul, too soon. <laughs> yes. Um, so it's a highly successful debut single for, for Apple Records. And uh, Paul Denoye, the uh, music journalist, says that the song has... Uh, quote, a monumental quality which amazed the public in 1968 uh, and sort of, you know, points out that, you know, the, the release silences uh, any of the, tractor, the detractors that the, Brit- that the Beatles would have had in the British mainstream press who'd been criticising the band pretty solidly since 1967. Magical Mystery Tour famously at the end of 67 is their first you know, take with a pinch of salt, failure. And they are criticised for it and people pile on and then they're seen to, you know, go to Rishikesh and be a bit weird. And Lady Madonna, great song, but a bit underwhelming. It doesn't really, you know, yeah. add anything to 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 the form uh, and it doesn't get to number one in America. That song peaks at number four. So for Hey Jude to sort of land uh, at the end of August into September, um, you know, with this kind of massive sound, uh, massive video, um, new record label, we don't really, you know, at the time you wouldn't have thought actually this is the beginning of the end. You would have thought, oh, this is the beginning of the beginning. Here we go. This is this is this the beginning of seventies Beatles? You know. Yes, this does come across. You know, without the benefit of hindsight, this looks like a new beginning. Mm, yeah, and uh, uh, hugely successful. Um, you know, it's a mass success in the states, and it. Uh, it spends 19 weeks on the Billboard charts and gets to number one on the 28th of September. And as we said, it stays there for uh, nine weeks with Those Were the Days at number two, which is a pretty solid Apple debut in the in the US. And so it only leaves the number one spot in the US just as uh, the White Album is coming out, you know. So sometimes we don't, we kind of think of Hey Jude as a little bit apart from the White Album, but they're happening at the same time, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And uh, supposedly this was the longest run at number one for a single in the US until 1977. I'm trying to think off the top of my head what would have come in in 1977. Would that be something by... I'm going to guess a Bee Gees, a Bee Gees thing. thing, yeah. thing but I, I can't say for certain. Uh, but that's where my money would go. But by uh, November 1968, it had sold six million copies worldwide. You think uh, you couldn't sell six million copies of anything? these days no um, and it gets nominated for the Grammys but doesn't win any uh, for the 1969 Grammys and it's best single of the year in the enemy readers poll and in 2001 it's inducted into the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences Grammy Hall of Fame and is one of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll which kind of leads back to my original point way back at the first episode so this is you know this is the basis of anthemic rock you know the the, the song I think about that comes a few months later is in the rock and roll circus is you can't always get what yeah. you want, you know, which is kind of the Rolling Stones's I think, slight attempt at an anthemic kind of song that goes on too long that you can kind of, you know, uh, draw an audience in with. Are you saying that the Rolling Stones copied the Beatles, that they started uh, with an acoustic intro and then no, built to no, a massive crescendo with a choir of backing? I mean, that, that's... Not terrible thing. Slanderous. Terrible thing to say. Terrible thing to say. Well, well, what I do, what I do think, Hey Jude does is I do think it does inspire the Beatles. I think the DNA of Hey Jude follows through into Let It Be and the Long and Winding Road. You know, as these kind of Paul's at a piano and he's singing something to make everybody feel reflective and okay. Yeah, I, I think Hey Jude 
does that much better than let it be in the long and winding road. Yeah, I think so. And Paul thinks so too. <laughs> Good. Well, he, listen, when, if we talk about Paul and this song, there is a never-ending litany of live Paul McCartney versions. And he doesn't introduce it on, into his set in the 70s at all. But when he does the big post Flowers in the Dirt tour uh, in 1989, where he's finally being the live legacy of the Beatles type Paul that we know today, Hey Jude is there. And it's pretty much been there at every gig since. Yeah, I think it is interesting that, you know, the Wings Over America, he he's reintroducing a few Beatles songs, but not, not this one. And I think it is so inextricably linked with the Beatles. You know, Yesterday is a solo performance. He can do that. Uh, Long and Winding mm. Road, Lady Madonna. Uh, I've just seen a face. But Hey Jude is so quintessentially uh, sort of late phase Beatles song that, uh, yeah. as you say, it's when he finally comes to terms with he, his role as the custodian of the legacy. Uh, I remember seeing it in uh, 1989 and it was really quite something when you suddenly realise that's, yeah. that's, that's what it's going to be. And When you saw him, did he do the mock piano intro? Like on the on Trip in the Life Fantastic, he does If I Were Not Upon the Stage when he sits at the piano and everyone, and then he trips into hate shoot. I have no memory of that, but that may have <laughs> may have been because I have blanked that from my memory because it was so terrible. Understandable. I, th- I think one of the big um, criticisms or desires of Paul Megafans is that he would mix it up live yeah. from time to time. Uh, but there's a great quote here from GQ magazine in 2018 where Paul says, whenever I do a new tour, I think, well, I'll just switch up all the songs. But then I go... I've got to do Hey Jude because it's so much fun and it's great handing that over to the audience. You know, the, you know, the greatest thing is you feel the sense of community. And in these times when it's a little dark and people are sort of separated by politics and stuff, it's fantastic to just see them all come together singing the end of Hey Jude. So I'm very happy about that. So I keep it in the show. Again, Paul McCartney plus audience. That's what the art is. Unbeatable. Unbeatable. Yes. I, we, I did say way back when we started the very first episode, it seems like a year ago. I mean, <laughs> um, yes, we went to see him in Liverpool and we thought, ah, he's going to do Hey Jude. That's, oh, I suppose you kind of, he's got to do Hey Jude. But actually in the moment, you, in the moment, just, you don't want to hear anything else. You don't want to hear anything else. You just got from the first uh, kind of opening uh, uh, refrain to that, 40 minutes later when he's finishing the last na-na-na, uh, you absolutely do not do not want to be anywhere else. You, you completely get swept up in it. And uh, absolutely, I would love him to mix up the set list uh, and yep. add, you know, Temporary Secretary or Uncle Albert or Backseat of My Car, any of those songs. But I do think Hey Jude now has absolutely earned its place. And I, I, I wouldn't see it drop from the set list. Absolutely. And, you know, in the live arena, you see him doing it and you're like, oh, that's the guy from the David Frost show video. That's the, yeah. that is the guy. It's it's very affecting. And I don't know if you ever, uh, Stephen, uh, watch these reaction videos that young people watch on YouTube where somebody reacts or responds to yes. something they haven't experienced before. Um, you know, there's many, many, many people reacting to the Beatles for the first time. But there is one very touching clip that kind of went around online last year from a woman who calls herself the J Show, J-A-Y-Y Show, where she's reacting 
reacting to her first ever exposure to the Beatles, which is Hey Jude. And it's classic YouTube video. Hey, all y'all, I've been told to check out the Beatles and I'm going to watch this song, Hey Jude. And she's watching the clip with the David Frost introduction. And, uh, you know, she's kind of smiling and laughing and tolerating it and all the rest. And I'm assuming this lady's in her 20s. And uh, as soon as Paul starts singing, you just get this wave, this look across her face where she's about to cry. She's not about to cry. She's okay. She's smiling. And you're just watching her emotions in real time over the seven minutes. And when it gets to, you know, the the climax, better, better, better. And Paul lets out that scream. She just has this extraordinary look on her face. It's uh, as a genre of videos, they can sometimes be very irritating. But this this response to Hey Jude, you're like, oh, there's somebody falling in love with the Beatles for the first time, getting it straight away. And through the gap of over 50 years, they're communicating to this person the way that song is supposed to be communicated. And that person, generations apart, miles apart, is getting the communal aspect of that song straight away. That's quite a gift. There wasn't in 1968, there wasn't any songs from 1918 that were communally cutting no. across generations and age groups uh, the way that Hey Jude cuts across now. Um, so we'll put out a link to that. But that's a, that's a kind of a, a lovely kind of microcosm of what this song does. I mean, there is loads of performances of, of Hey Jude over the years. So I'm, I'm just kind of looking at a, a a list here. As we said, it's on Trip and the Live Fantastic. Uh, it's on the, the live album back in the U.S., uh, there's a version recorded there. Um, it's recorded in front of the Queen's uh, Golden Jubilee party at the Palace in 2002. It's on the Amoeba Gig album from 2007. Um, it's on uh, Good Evening New York City, um, recorded in July 2009. Um, any highlights there? There's perhaps too many recorded versions of it. You know, I think it works in a live arena as a live song, but yes. I, don't, I, I, I don't need to hear it on a live record. I think the first one would have been fine. Uh, we we yeah. could have left it there. Uh, it is also the song that he chose to play at the 2012 Olympics. Okay, shall we move swiftly on? <laughs> it's not a great performance. It's not his finest moment, I think. I don't know what was going on there. That the, he he was doing that thing much like the original film. He's playing to a tape. Yeah, but his voice is on the tape. But his voice is also live, and he 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 kind of comes in early. I think. And then yeah. everybody is kind of out of sync for the first 30 seconds. It's a very, I, I remember watching it and it was just, it was, he doesn't have, he doesn't have much luck with those big live, you know, I'm thinking live mm. aid and, and the Olympics, you know. Um, it's the original lyrics are actually well the, the 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 Paul McCartney by the time this episode goes out, the British Library exhibition of Paul McCartney's lyrics is over, but it was on display in the British Library. And I did go and see those original lyrics. Uh, and did you get a wave of anything uh, extraordinary happen? Uh, not really, I have to say. It was it was quite a small display. It was it, I mean it was thirty feet long, uh, sort of mm-hmm. glass fronted case with different uh, lyrics in it. But it, the one that really got me was seeing the handwritten lyrics to yesterday. That was like the kind of holy grail. Really? Yeah. Um, but I, that, was, that was just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I met up with a friend of the show, Dan Revelato, and we went to the British Library. And uh, But it, 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 it was quite odd to be looking mm-hmm. at, you think, the way I was looking at it was not so much Paul McCartney has written this, but it was sort of, this is 
this is like a manuscript that was in the room when they recorded it. It was more to do with the fact <laughs> yes. that it, it had maybe picked up some of the vibrations that were in, in, in the room uh, as much as the fact that it was in Paul's handwriting, you know? And it's, it's weird because if you rewind back to 2002, the original handwritten lyrics were nearly auctioned off at Christie's in London, that there was a, a sheet of notepaper with the lyrics listed as a, a guide price of £80,000 scheduled for auction in April 2002. And McCartney steps in with his uh, legal friends to say, you know, I, I own this. This doesn't belong to this person yeah. uh, who's trying to sell it. And it, it, it goes in McCartney's favor, doesn't it? Yes. So the, he, he it went to court and uh, the court said, no, you can't you can't sell this. He, he Paul seems to be saying, you know, this this was in my house and it, it went astray. Whereas what seems to have happened with a lot of these things is they record the song, they scrunch the lyrics up and they throw it in a bin. Yeah. And uh, so this person had claimed that they'd bought them at a market stall in London in the early 70s for £10. Uh, it was a Frenchman, uh, Florent Tessier. And in the catalogue, um, you know, even Julian Lennon is quoted to say, oh, it's very strange to think somebody has written a song about you. It still touches me. But Paul gets his legal friends involved and McCartney gets the lyrics back. Would you buy this from a market stall in London if somebody said to you, Give us a tenor. There's a piece of paper with the Hey Jude lyrics on it. Uh, well, you know, you could argue in 1970, the market for these things, you know, your hard rock cafes and so on and so forth, the value wasn't really there. You know, the notion of them as artistic artifacts in themselves, as you said, they were often just thrown into to waste paper baskets. I think it's amazing that any of these things exist yeah. at all, to be honest. Um, you know, uh, the song has this very um, long afterlife. And it, it turns out that Julian Lennon doesn't really discover that Hey Jude was written about him until maybe about 20 years after the fact, like into the late 80s. That that seems odd to me as well. I mean, yeah, it, it does. It, yeah. it, it does sit, that time frame does sit with what you were saying about, you know, Paul reintroducing it into the set list in 1989. And he tells the story about writing it and the movement you need is on your shoulder and the best line in it and all of those things. But it, it does seem inconceivable that Cynthia Mm. did not at some point say, well... Oh, by the way. Uncle yeah. Uncle Paul came to visit me when your dad and I were separated and he wrote this song. I mean, we, we, what we didn't touch on in the visit to Cynthia is, did Paul play the song to her? Did he sing the song to Julian at the time? Uh, you, you know, or did mm. he just have it in his head at that point? Uh, it, Apparently not. Like, I think we pushed, you know... Um, Cynthia, rest her soul, has written plenty of books. I think she would have said he rocked up with a red rose and he had written this song for me. You know, that's not, never been part of the story. But it is it is strange, is it not, that uh, Paul is saying, you know, this was a song of consolation for Julian and then he gets there and doesn't impart the song. But, uh, but, but anyway, uh, J Julian... Uh, did not fare well in his father's will and, uh, no. you know, did not have many bits of memorabilia. So he, he spent a lot of time in the late 80s, early 90s uh, buying up bits and pieces. And he, he paid uh, £25,000 for recording notes to Heyjud. And, mm. uh, you know, this is part of a general sort of collecting of his father's uh, possessions. Yes. And uh, something that's also worth noting is, you know, it's a song that's been often covered, uh, certainly contemporaneously at the time. Uh, Wilson Pickett had probably the most success for a notable cover in 1968, which reached number 23 in the US. And that's a, that is a good cover. That is a good cover, although it's primarily, I like that cover for the 
guitar part, which is uh, Dwayne Allman. So, and, and that actually landed, that's something that Eric Clapton picked up on, wasn't it? Isn't that the gateway that gets Clapton to Allman? Yes, yes, more or less. He's, yeah, he, yeah. he said, uh, you know, to this day, I've never heard a better rock guitar playing on an R&B record than that. And uh, Elvis covered it, of course. Oh, yes, that's right, of course. And uh, yeah, that's, um, that's one of the few Beatles songs that Elvis does a, does a proper cover of. We have been on a very long odyssey and journey with this song. What does it uh, What does it all mean? What's it all about? What's it all about? It's uh, It's all about Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, 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 I guess the thing is that it, it, uh, what is curious about the song is you know some of the things we're trying to talk about today, or what we're trying to do through these episodes, is to try and put it into context of how it came out in the middle of the Beatles' career and journey. And it's a song that has lasted and it hasn't dated, I don't think, the way some other bits might date it. It doesn't sound particularly old or young. And if you're trying to put it into that place and time, like the contemporary reviews were very... Um, positive at the time. So uh, I have some of them here, you know, Derek Johnson of the NME says, you know, it's uh, the intriguing features of this song are its extreme length and its 40 piece orchestral accompaniment. Um, He says, I would have preferred it without either, but uh, overall it is a beautiful, compelling song. Um, And, you know, the song itself is absolutely sensational, although he's not really sure about the, the outgoing coda. And Chris Welch of the Melody Maker says, you know, he's come to admire Hey Jude for its slow, heavy piano-ridden beats, soulful vocals, thumpy drums. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it, it lands very well at the time. It is. my One of my favourite uh, comments is by Paul Williams in Rock and Roll 100 Best Singles. He said, it kicks ass like Van Gogh or Beethoven in their prime. It is, let's say, one of the wonders of this corner of creation. It opens out like the sky at night or the idea of the existence of God. Um, the... Rolling Stone magazine, I think there's a little summary, and I think this probably is my favourite take on this song. And uh, they say it's one of the very few Beatles songs about a conversation between men. And like She Loves You, it's a conversation where one friend is urging the other to do the right thing by a woman. Neither Paul nor John really cared what men had to say about anything. That was one of their deepest spiritual connections, uh, a classic statement of fabulously bitchy Beatle arrogance, yet the word us really jumps out of that line. Hey Jude is the sound of the lads working hard to capture that feeling of us after it stopped coming easy. Yeah, and th- there's another, you know, uh, another piece from Rolling Stone says that, you know, it's a message from McCartney to Lennon to end negative relationships with women, to break the old pattern, to really go through with love. And um, you know, this writer, Catherine Manfredi in, in Rolling Stone says it's the duality of the song's eponymous protagonist as a representation of the good in St. Jude, the patron saint of that which is called impossible and of evil, Judas Iscariot. I think maybe we're getting a little bit too deep, uh, too deep into things there. Um, but, it, you know, the, it goes on and on. Robert Christgau, 1971, one of McCartney's truest and most forthright love songs. And he kind of puts it up against something like I Will, which he calls a piece of fluff uh, by comparison. Um, and I also like the fact that in 1975, Roy Carr, Tony Tyler in an illustrated record say that Hey Jude promised great things for the Apple business. Yes. And described the song as the last great Beatles single recorded specifically 
for the 45s market. Um, that the epic proportions of the piece, um, you know, encouraged many imitators, yet these imitators did not capture the gentleness and sympathy, and I would say empathy, of the Beatles' communal feel in the single itself. So overall, a great song. Maybe the, the last word should go to Peter Doggett, who describes Hey Jude as a song that glowed with the optimism glowed with optimism after a summer that had burned with anxiety and rage within the group and in the troubled world beyond. A single release that coincided with the violent subjugation of the Vietnam War protesters at the DNC in Chicago and condemnation of the West uh, of the Soviet-led invasion of Czechoslovakia in its crushing attempts to introduce democratic reforms there. Uh, In this climate, Lenin's espousal of a pacifist agenda over violent confrontation and revolution drew heavy criticism from new left activists. By contrast with its more universal message, Hey Jude was adopted by an anthem by Czech citizens in their struggle. So once again, that puts it back in context. But, you know, 50 plus years later, well, it's just a song for all of us. I think you can put your own interpretation on it and it means... Mm -hmm. All things to all men. It is Paul's gift of being able to take what was obviously a very personal song, but yet create uh, a kind of universality and uh, tap into that. Mm, take a sad song and make it better indeed. Um, you know, it's it's a song that we really want to send you all back to. We always like it when these episodes send people back to the original music, because that's what it's all about. And you know, sometimes some of these songs can be over-familiar, but Hey Jude still delivers, and it really stands out as this, uh, you know, beginning of the last chapter of the Beatles, of them kind of graduating into proper, fully formed adulthood, uh, I, I would say. Yeah, I think it did seem to signal a new beginning. It probably is their greatest late-period song, and it's difficult not to view everything that comes after as a sort of elegy. It's a sort of, there's an elegiac quality to the second side of Abbey Road. It's close to the end and the end becomes inevitable. Nothing is inevitable at this point and this does seem to be a new beginning. Yeah, it does sort of capture a, a, a theme in their music that happens throughout the next 18 months of them kind of bringing it to an end, which is this, it's almost like an uh, like a nostalgia for things that haven't happened or for things that you, you can't recapture again, but, you know, facing the future head on. It's it's a great track and we want you all to, to go back and listen to it and watch the videos and dig out all the different versions and all of Paul's live versions over the years. I feel we could probably do a, a playlist with about 70 different Hey Judes on it if that wasn't a form of uh, madness to, to listen to that back to back. I'll leave that to you. Thank you very much. But what do you think, everybody? We're available in all the usual places uh, at, Be- at Beatles Pod on Twitter, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group with over 6,000 people talking Beatles in there. All of it uh, going through our website, www.nothingisrealpod.com. And through that website, you can learn about ACAS Plus, where we've got bonus supporter episodes uh, going back over the last 12 months, uh, including bonus episodes to go with this very uh, how many parts do we do? 17 parts on Hey Jude uh, that, you can, uh, that you can tune into for that time. But for now, thank you for joining us on the Hey Jude Odyssey. I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thank you for listening. Thank you. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.